Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhry. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I'm your host, Arun Chaudhary, and today we have a very special Deep Cuts in which we have Vincent Bevins, who's going to talk a lot about the thing we talk about a lot here, which is U.S. interventionism and what we can learn about it and apply it to the present day. Julia Doubleday has put this together. As always, we are deeply grateful. Can you tell us a little bit more about what we'll be talking Definitely. about? Definitely. So Vincent Bevins joining us today, uh, as you mentioned, um, he is an award-winning journalist and he's the author of this book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program That Shaped Our World. This is a very well-received book. Um, it's, it's super engaging. It contains a ton of information that I personally didn't know. Um, and it really spans this multi-decade period of time, um, both events in Indonesia and across the world from the years leading up to Sukarno's time as president, to his overthrow, to the ensuing chaos and violence, and the long-lasting ramifications of that. It's estimated during the U.S.-supported pogrom against communists and leftists in 1965 and 66, somewhere between 500,000 and a million people were killed, although we may never know the true number. In the process, the world's third largest communist party was exterminated from existence. So we want to delve into, um, you know, what happened in Indonesia. But first, I think we should talk a little bit, uh, you know, setting the scene, what was going on in those decades leading up to this um, extermination of leftists. So before we get to the coup, let's let's talk about Indonesia um, in the 40s and the 50s. How did Sukarno rise to power and what was his sort of political persuasion? Yeah especially like aligned with and not aligned in the Cold War, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a, I think that's a great place to start. I usually try to start this story in 1945, and I usually think it's a good, um, a good way to uh, explain the world in 1945 is to go back to this whole division of first world, second world, and third world. Now, the term third world has been degraded a bit in the English language by... Um, the racists that have spoken in over the last 70 years, but initially the third world was quite a optimistic and forward, um, forward-looking project. This was about um, recreating the world after the end of colonization in the global south. So um, in the first world, we had uh, the rich countries of the formerly imperialist uh, North Atlantic plus Japan and Australia. Uh, and, and it should be stressed again, all of these countries uh, engaged uh, in colonialism or imperialism as they became rich. Then you had the second world, which was led from Moscow, um, especially after the end of World War II, a very powerful force, but not nearly as powerful uh, as the United States in the first world. I think that's also important to stress. And then you had the vast majority of humanity. You had about two thirds of the people on the planet. Um, these are people in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, almost all of which uh, had lived through centuries of European or North American uh, colonialism. And in this period after 1945, this mass of humanity was going through the process of either recovering from colonization 
or still in the process of trying to kick out the Europeans. I mean, famously, France came back to Vietnam to try to reestablish rule there, failed. Uh, in Indonesia, which is now the fourth largest country uh, on the planet by population, the Dutch, which had controlled this group of islands for a very long time, came back after World War II and tried to reestablish um, uh, colonial domination, and they failed. Now, the first person to take over Indonesia uh, in 1945, after the, the re-expulsion of the Dutch, was a man named Sukarno. And he was really at the forefront of this third world movement, um, which was about allying the peoples of the Global South, what we now call the Global, the global South, the peoples of the third world, to reshape the rules of the global economy. And they believed, um, I think quite understandably, that now that formal colonization was over, now that formal European control of Asia and Africa and Latin America was over, they would naturally and obviously have the ability to take their rightful place uh, alongside the first and second world. And they would really be the third act of history, not sort of the third rate countries. Um, so Sukarno was left leaning, um, not a communist, but certainly influenced by Marxism as almost everyone that was important in the anti-colonial struggle had been in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and he was putting together, um, well, he was the president um, in a very young and um, fledgling democracy that uh, attempted to be not aligned with the Soviet Union, but opposed to capitalism in its most uh, savage forms, opposed to colonialism, and really all about uniting the third world in the attempt to reform the rules of the global economy. So that's, that's where we are as Indonesia is born, under the leadership of this left-leaning Muslim anti-colonial sort of founding father. He really gave the ideology of Indonesian-ness to this uh, archipelago nation, which had really only been held together up to that point by Dutch imperialism. So let's fast forward a little bit to this. Uh, in 1955, there's the Afro-Asian Conference in Bandung, uh, where the leaders of the third world uh, came together. And eventually, you know, the meetings that they had there sort of grew into what we call the non-aligned movement. So maybe just like delve a little bit more into what was going on at this conference. Was Sukarno, I mean, it seems like he was really a leader of the of the third world, so-called third world. Um, what happened in the years after that to sort of um, cement these alliances um, that were coming up in the era after colonization was ending? Yeah, exactly. So Bandung 1955 is really the moment when the third world comes into its own as a real self-conscious uh, concrete project. Um, it happens in Indonesia on the island of Bandung. Um, uh, Sukarno gives the famous opening speech and um, many of the Indonesians and, and people throughout the rest of the third world that I met for this book told me that once they heard Sukarno's opening speech at the, the Bandung conference, they never forgot it for the rest of their lives. It was sort of seared into their brains. Mm -hmm. um, and he took the stage and he said, um, this is the first meeting of the, the world's so-called colored peoples in the history of mankind. The first time that the black and brown peoples of the world had come together without white people overseeing them. Uh, I think that was probably a correct uh, uh, analysis of what was going on. Um, and so the, the very disparate uh, types of governments and movements that existed across Africa and Asia, um, uh, and Brazil was an observer uh, at, the, at the 1955 conference, so uh, Latin America as well, um, didn't agree on everything, but they all really agreed 
on the sort of guiding philosophy that he put forward at Bondin, which was anti-colonialism and the quest for true sovereignty above all other things, right? He says, everybody here knows, you know, the embarrassments, the, the, the depravity, the indignities of colonialism. This is what's going to unite us, and this is how we're going to, to come together to reshape the world. And this really spawned a number of organizations that were active across the global south. You know, in the book I talk about, you know, magazines that that um, shared stories of what it's like to be a feminist Muslim in Egypt versus in Indonesia, uh, stories of anti-colonial armed struggles told by people that had already won their struggles, um, attempts to create a new kind of global journalism, uh, sort of like from the South, by the South, you know, being written by the peoples of the third world rather than um, by, by people like me uh, in the English language uh, uh, press from North, the North Atlantic. and. Um, 1955 was also the moment at which the United States decided they could no longer tolerate Sukarno's vision. Um, <laughs> in the first years of the Cold War, the United States really didn't know what they were supposed to be doing in the Global South. I mean, the United States was new to this position as the overpowering, uh, the, the far, and, far and away most powerful country in the world, as the, as the hegemon, as we might call it, or as an empire, depending on what your political um, uh, uh, ideology is yourself. Um, and they knew what to do with the second world, but they didn't know exactly what to do with the third world. So initially, Sukarno was seen as sort of tolerable because he wasn't a communist and the communists had been sort of, had experienced uh, a crackdown during the uprising against the Dutch. In 1955, for two reasons, the CIA really decides, no, no, this guy and this vision of Indonesianness, this vision of the third world, is not something we can put up with. One is the Bandung Conference, which was met with racist condescension in the State Department. And two was the fact that the unarmed, um, uh, moderate uh, uh, Communist Party was doing better and better in elections. And this was something that really worried MI6 and CIA because as they recognized in now declassified files, the reason they were doing better and better was because they were simply good at politics. People liked them. Um, they couldn't be, uh, they weren't tricking anyone. They were really sort of organically gaining popularity. And so in the years after 1955, you see not only the flowering of sort of South-South projects, third worldism as a sort of guiding ideology, but numerous attempts coming from Washington and the North Atlantic to crush this vision uh, of a post-war order. And I know we're going to get into some of the actual horrible mechanics and then they will be horrible. But uh, a question that, that I have here is in terms of sort of the narrative war, is this where you see the U.S., Western Europe folks start to talk about nationalism in a different way, in a sort of more threatening and less self-determination kind of way? Or since, you know, since this isn't a hardcore Soviet thing, like how does this kind of fit into the narrative of what the U.S. is supposed to be doing? Let alone the hardcore political power tactics that we'll see. Just yeah. So if you, if you if we're talking about the mainstream narrative about what's going on uh, in the global south, like what you could have read in the New York Times and papers like that, it was really just like a misrepresentation, if any uh, representation was going on at all. This, this conversation wasn't really ha being had in the living rooms of the American people. Now, behind the scenes at CIA, State Department, in the White House, things really changed in 1953 with the ascendance of, of Eisenhower. So the CIA, which had been um, formed uh, just after World War II, um, they had been failing repeatedly in the 40s and early 50s at actually making any dents in the second world, at going after the actual communist nations. Now, Eisenhower, mm -hmm. someone who did not like actual war, who, d who deplored uh, the cost of the Korean War, um, 
appoints the Dulles brothers. So, and under the Dulles brothers, you have the first successes of this CIA method in Iran, 1953, in Guatemala, 1954. So after the ascension of the Dulles brothers, in the beginning of the Eisenhower administration, you really have a flip as, the, as to the way that, to answer your question, nationalism is viewed in the global south. Under Truman, in the early years of the Cold War, it was viewed as something perhaps that could be tolerated. Maybe, oh, okay, I kind of get what they're doing. They want to be independent, kind of like we did. After 1953, absolutely not. After 1953, if you were neutral, you were an enemy. Okay. If you were standing up for national sovereignty in any way that was slightly different from the way that the United States wanted to impose it on you, you were as bad as communists and needed to be crushed. So um, with Iran, Guatemala, 1954, the CIA really proves to Eisenhower, oh, I have, you know, I've discovered the cheat codes for crushing sort of left-leaning independence movements in the global south. We could just do this everywhere. And lo and behold, they turned to Indonesia in the middle of the 50s to crush um, probably the most famous, if, uh, if not the most famous, the most eloquent uh, proponent of this type of sovereignty, of this type of um, post-colonial independence. Yeah, I think you hit on something interesting, too, with I think with the term nationalism, it's so broad and it can be used in so many different ways that it has this ambiguity that can be really um, sort of weaponized against people. And I think I've, I've seen similar things with like the term populism. So this idea of like, well, Donald Trump is a populist and Bernie Sanders is a populist. So they're both populists. So that means they're the same, you know, and yeah. it's like these are very, very broad terms that can refer to totally different situations and then it allows sort of bad faith actors to draw these parallels where maybe you know there shouldn't there shouldn't really be a parallel there yeah, um, so, i mean smart people in like the people that actually cared about the the nuances of life in the global south in the state department brought up that exact point at the time because you know people that came out of world war ii the men running the united states government they thought nationalism they thought hitler Oh, right. like a national, right, exactly. that must be race that's, thing. That's exactly right. Whereas Howard Jones, one of the uh, the ambassadors to Indonesia, which I, I focus on quite a bit in the book, he's constantly trying to tell people in Washington, he's like, no, 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 when, when Sukarno talks about nationalism, he's talking about the construction of a nation out of imperial slavery, right? Like the nation for him is not a rational thing at all. It's actually this idea of na nationalism is constructed through the anti-colonial struggle. It's an entirely different thing. It has more to do with Benjamin Franklin than anybody in, in Germany or Italy in the 30s. Uh, but no one, I don't know if they didn't listen to him as much as they didn't care. Um, you know, the, he, he, he was paying too much to the, you know, the, uh, uh, the boring details on the ground, whereas their job was to smash and clear away for uh, the budding U.S. hegemony that we, I think, all live in now. Yeah, and I think my use of the term, like, bad faith, I do think that when it comes to these issues, it's the people that are utilizing the terms, and a lot of cases do understand that you could make a distinction there, um, but it's just easier to make their argument if they can make it very digestible for the public. So just telling people nationalism is bad is very, I think, an easy pill for people to swallow. Um, so let's delve a little bit more into the U.S. as we sort of get up into the 60s. Um, what was going on with the sort of formation of the CIA? Who were the major players in the CIA um, and in Indonesia as we get closer to the coup? And also what happened um, after Kennedy was assassinated? How did the U.S. policy toward Indonesia change at that time? Yeah, there's a sort of, uh, there's a weird back and forth um, 
from 1955 to 1965, which I'll try to summarize really quickly. After Bandung and after it becomes clear that the Communist Party is doing better and better elections, um, they try to crush the Indonesian left. First attempt is just to funnel money into a conservative Muslim party, Masumi. This is a classic strategy that works very well in Italy. This is always like, mm -hmm. it's what you try first. It's very, it's, 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 it's low cost. It's easy. No one's going to, uh, no one's going to get caught. This does not work. Um, Masumi does not do very well. The Indonesian Communist Party keeps him better and better. Now, in 1958, you have the CIA um, copying what had been done in Guatemala. And so, I mean, you ask who who's really in charge in the CIA. Um, you know, the CIA officially, initially, is, a, is supposed to be supplying information to the president, which seems fine. Uh, that's, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But from the very beginning, they had a covert operations uh, team. And, and the man that was sort of the... the, the uh, godfather of this and, and the leader of it for a long time was a man named Frank Wisner that I and I that I talk about quite a bit in the book. Uh, I met his son um, during the reporting, and he um, uh, had been quite influential in making all of these uh, coups happen. And so Guatemala '54, which was a success, throwing over Hokobarbens and, and, and crushing Indonesia or Guatemala's young democracy, becomes the model for a invasion of Indonesia in 1958. So the CIA foments and then participates in a civil war in 1958, seeking to break a country apart. Now, this consists of actual Americans flying over sort of idyllic islands uh, 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 in uh, Indonesia and dropping bombs on them and killing civilians. And this is something that, like, Again, like the gap between what everybody knew was happening on the ground and like what the press in the U.S. would have been saying or what even the diplomats had to pretend that they thought was happening is, is really huge. So the Indonesian left has been saying throughout all the 50s, like, look, the U.S. is an imperialist power. They're taking over for the Europeans. Look what they're doing in Vietnam. They can't be trusted. They want to crush us. They will never allow this kind of uh, sovereignty to really take to take root in the global south. And when one of these CIA uh, pilots crash lands into the island of Ambon and is caught after a bombing campaign, they are proved right. So, so the, the side of Indonesian politics that has been saying for a long time, hey, the Americans are trying to destroy us. It seems that they have been vindicated by 1958. So after this, the United States has to really back off. This is a big embarrassment. No one in the US really finds out about it. But in, in Southeast Asia, this is a really big deal. Um, so uh, interestingly, John F. Kennedy was one of the few people in the post-McCarthyist mm -hmm. political environment in the United States that kind of understood that distinction that we just d discussed. He was one of the few people that had traveled around the world, talked to leaders in India and Southeast Asia and Africa, and understood what anti-colonial nationalism actually meant in the global South. And he, he said many times in the 50s in, in public speeches, like, hey, we need to be aware that they're kind of fighting for what we fought for a long time ago. We cannot just treat them as if they're all just communists. Um, so when he was elected in... in uh, 1960 and takes over in 61, Sukarno's very excited. Sukarno thinks he has somebody that understands uh, his whole project. Um, so in the, in the first years of the 60s, there is this uneasy piece where even though Sukarno's gotten closer to socialist uh, countries in Asia and a little bit closer to the Soviet Union, there is still technically officially friendship and the U.S. like the Soviet Union is providing aid. Now, all of that changes when JFK is assassinated. I think this is one of the more underappreciated consequences of the death of JFK. The, the, 
The stance of the United States towards Indonesia changes entirely with the ascendance of LBJ to power, and I think that the massacre would not have happened in the way it did, uh, at the time it did at least, in 1965, if it were not for the death of, of John F. Kennedy. So um, I know you were just mentioning the CIA's intervention that was going on for a period of years and that the left, the PKI, in Indonesia for a lot of years, you know, there was a free press in Indonesia at that time. There were leftist um, journalistic outlets who were reporting that the CIA was interfering, but they were basically sort of treated as conspiracy theory theorists. Um, the New York Times was started to run op-eds denouncing Sukarno um, and basically, you know, claiming that um, they're telling wild stories. Um, I did want to focus on one of the CIA plots against Sukarno just because I think it's so, it's sort of, I think, become sort of an urban legend because it was so ridiculous. Right. But this is the um, the plot to get rid of him through a fake pornographic video. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Oh, yeah. Classic. Yeah, so I think something to understand about the CIA, especially in the 50s, is these were quite literally frat boys with unlimited resources and no chance of being held accountable for anything. You know, destroying nations, wasting money, coming up with stupid ideas. They could do whatever they wanted. Um, and in the late 50s, uh, we don't know the exact dates on either the film or the assassination plot, but some of the things that they came up with were to either kill Sukarno, and it came out um, officially in 1975 with the church commissions that they had discussed assassinating him, um, and then it also uh, it also emerged through sort of testimony and, and uh, rumors, but I think it's quite clear that it happened, that they actually did record a sex tape uh, using an actor uh, in Los Angeles. Um, the, uh, the producer of this sex tape was Bing Crosby and his brother Larry. Because, again, we forget, like, those of us that grew up, like, in the era of The X-Files or later... The idea that the CIA does bad stuff is very natural to us. But back in the 50s, if the CIA came to you, you just did whatever they asked, right? It was considered patriot, whether you're the New York Times, whether you're Bing Crosby, whoever, uh, it was considered patriotic to help the CIA as if you were helping sort of, you know, fight the Nazis or something. It was only later that we understood that they did these insane things all the time. Um, and according to testimonies about the film, they hired a Mexican-American actor in Los Angeles, made it look like he had slept with a Russian KGB agent, uh, and they were going to release this in Indonesia and one, destroy his reputation as like a good Muslim, they thought. And two, release this plot, which is oddly reminiscent of a lot of the stuff that happened during Russiagate, that he was actually compromised by the KGB. He had slept with the KGB. They controlled him. Um, what they didn't know is that everybody in Indonesia already knew that he slept around all the time. And news that he had slept with a blonde Russian woman would have been unsurprising, if not Fine. a source of pride. Uh, <laughs> And, and But also, apparently, the film just wasn't very good. So they ended up not, not releasing it. Yeah. Um, I mean, matter, it's yeah. funny, but it's not, right? Like, because they were really, like, this person genuinely inspired feelings of national pride and hope in building a better future together as a young nation, people working for, together for the first time in centuries to create a world with their own hands. Um, and they wanted to just destroy his reputation because it might have made things easier geopolitically in, geopolitically in that part of the world. Um, so it was not released, but it was, yeah, one of the many insane things that the, the CIA did in the late 50s and early 60s. Until after the Bay of Pigs, it seems they recede a little bit. I mean, JFK is, despite his sort of third world, quasi-third-worldist rhetoric in the late 50s, uh, his administration is certainly not shy about interventions, coups, 
uh, fomenting uh, or um, and uh, destabilization in the global south. But in Indonesia, at least, there was officially kind of good relations uh, until he died. Now, when LBJ takes over, that changes. He seems not to care as much about Indonesia. He doesn't really understand what's going on out there. He's under a lot of pressure domestically. Um, and sort of the hawks around him in Washington that have long argued that this Sukarno guy got, has to go um, kind of rise to positions of prominence in, in the U.S. government. Right. Okay. So let's um, move on then to 65, you know, leading up to 65, you have, um, the, you know, the, the coup in Brazil happens. Sukarno said, famously says um, in a speech, the U.S. can go to hell, go to hell with your aid, which makes a lot of headlines. Um, then after the Gulf of Tonkin, Sukarno establishes relations with the Ho- with Ho Chi Minh's government, which is a big no-no to the U.S. So... Let's talk about what happens, what was the September 30th movement, what sort of launches the coup, and then how does Suharto take power and consolidate power? Yeah, so uh, as you sort of briefly summarize, in 63, 64, you have this escalation of tensions between the U.S. uh, and Indonesia, which is really started by Johnson's decision to to cut off aid, and Sukarno sees what they're saying about him back in the U.S., and he's like, screw you, like, I'm... I'm the leader of a country. Like I get to do, you know. I don't treat me as if I'm, uh, uh, you know, a servant to you. And um, at the end, uh, and then so the ambassador that I described earlier as being sort of a little bit more careful and understanding of things in Indonesia than other people in the U.S. government, he's removed, and they bring in somebody that is widely seen to be sort of a, 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 a ringer, a bruiser, a coup specialist. He had helped carry out a coup in South Korea previously. Um, everybody um, thought that this guy is, being, is, is coming here to help carry out regime change. Now, we now know through declassified uh, files that we don't know the full scope of the activities that in this period, late from 64 to the uh, summer of 1965, CIA and MI6 are agitating behind the scenes with the goal of cre- creating a clash between the very well-armed military, which has been receiving U.S. funding and training since 1958, and the very popular but unarmed Indonesian Communist Party. Um, The Indonesian Communist Party, we know now that the CIA and MI6 knew at the time, would have won elections if they were held uh, fairly. Um, But CIA and MI6 knew exactly what happens when an unarmed and an armed group clash. They, They hoped to create a, a confrontation in which the, the, the left would be crushed. Now, the September 30th movement is a still shadowy and mysterious mechanism through which this clash did take place. We are not exactly sure to this day who exactly planned it, to what extent they wanted things to go this way, hoped things would go another way. Um, all of this is very hazy, and I interviewed a lot of people for the book, people who lived through this, people who were... Um, first-hand participants in some of the events, and everybody has a different theory as to exactly who planned this and why. But I think the important thing to say is that this this confrontation was created. And immediately, this confrontation was used as a pretext by a general named Suharto, who was relatively unknown to most Indonesians, but he was known to the CIA, at least somehow, to seize power and begin a remarkably well-crafted propaganda campaign in the country 
shutting down all communications mechanisms that the army did not control and using the ones that he did control to spread this sort of Hollywood-esque story of, of feminist, Marxist, witchcraft terror carried out literally against the genitals of upstanding Indonesian officers. It's like you could not create a more perfect story to sort of scare a man in, in, in a sort of patriarchal society or really any society. Um, so immediately he spreads a story that actually was the, the communists that had been trying to take over the country, that they had a plan to kill everyone, and that the Indonesian women's movement, which was probably the largest feminist movement in the world at the time, had actually taken some generals into a dark lair, uh, castrated them in a tantric communist ritual of demonic violence. And again, this is funny, but to this day, the women that were in this real organization, something that was really about sort of making sure women got educated, opposing genital mutilation, all the kinds of things that almost every sort of liberal or even conservative in the United States defends now, to this day, these people are still smeared in 2021 as witches or as anti-man or as anti-human. Um, so Suharto spreads this story with the active assistance of the U.S. government, the British governments and media in uh, both of those countries. And he uses that story again once more um, as a pretext to round up between one and two million people, arrest them. Um, these are often members of the Indonesian Communist Party, people that were affiliated with one of its many, many organizations, or people that were simply accused of being one of these organizations. Um, about one million of these people stayed in concentration camps that were um, for people to be held purely for their political views. And another 500,000 or one million of them were taken out in the middle of the night and stabbed or thrown into rivers or strangled. And... The reason it was so easy to kill this many people was that almost nobody that went into prison thought that this could ever happen to them. The Indonesian Communist Party was not a Che Guevara style group of rebels in, in the hills that knew that they were sort of fighting against the order of their of their country. I mean, like right. the PKI was aligned rhetorically in many ways, very, very closely with Sukarno. If you were like a good student, you might have joined the PKI because that was, you know, a good way to sort of like do a bunch of like history classes. If you were into literature or the arts, you, you often were in a PKI-affiliated organization. It wasn't the kind of people... People destined for the civil service. Yeah, it wasn't people... Really, you know, yeah, it was people that were working yeah. at the post office, not people that wanted to blow up the post office. Yeah, and I'm... So, I, yeah, please, oh, please. I was just going to say, I, I'm really glad that you're talking about that because I was going to ask, you know, specifically, it was super striking to me in the book that um, some of the folks that you interviewed, they willingly basically went to the police down to the police station because they were asked to and their feeling was you know we live in this democratic society now we've been you know freely exercising our right to speak in the press uh they weren't an underground um organization they were a really massive organization um that operated freely within this democratic context so i mean i think it really is crucial for leftists in particular to understand the way these things unfold and to understand um, it's actually really common in all of these circumstances we've seen across the world for people to say, well, that can't, that can't happen here. Um, and that it does, mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it, I think that that was super, super compelling, super striking, super scary that so many people just couldn't imagine that their own government could turn on them and murder them essentially. 
Yeah, and I mean, in this book, I mean, we're we're sort of we're going through the main event, which is 1965. But I, mm -hmm. in the book, I, I try in some way to touch on the 20 plus cases of this type of thing happening in the Cold War, and all these people I met throughout the world. This is a theme that always came up, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Whether it was 1973 in Chile, whether it's 1965 in Indonesia, whether it's 1954 in Guatemala, before this stuff happened, they would tell me, I would have thought this kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore, right? So, like, in, in the case of Chile, this is really common. They're like, oh, no, like, uh, you know, this is the 70s. This isn't Guatemala. You know, that kind of stuff is over. Like, that kind of stuff doesn't happen here. And then, you know, lo and behold, it happens there. And, and as, I, as I said before, this is sort of why it was so easy. You know, it's very, very hard to kill 500,000 to a million people. Um, and while it's been a few years now since I finished the research for the, for the book, like talking about this part is always hard because I would go through Sakon, who I'm thinking of, I'm, who I'm still in contact with. He's like doing really well. His daughter just got married. He told me about how he had gone through the school system in central Java the mayor of his city was 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 in the Communist Party. Like his, all of his teachers were in the Communist Party. He just really liked politics and history and stuff. Um, and he told me that when he went into prison, he was kind of like, "Oh, it was fun. Like you know, oh yeah, there's kind of like gonna be. It's like a football match. It's kind of like oh, the left is getting sort of, you know, a slap on the wrist for something or other. But I'll explain to them that I didn't do anything bad and it'll be fine. And then in the middle of the night, you know, a bunch of his friends disappear and they never come back." Um, and this is the dynamic which really makes possible the mass murder and makes possible the ascension of Suharto. I think this is another important thing to stress is that this mass murder was not something that happened incidentally to Suharto's dictatorship. A lot of times in the English speaking world, we talk about the Cold War, we're like, oh yeah, well, we backed a lot of bad guys that did bad things. Suharto killing all these people was not something that he kind of did in his spare time. If, it, if, if not for the destruction of the Indonesian Communist Party, the, the social base of President Sukarno, the largest unarmed party in the world, perhaps in history, uh, perhaps the largest democratic socialist movement in, in human history, uh, he would not have taken power. Uh, and, and if not for the U.S. cajoling him to take power, he wouldn't have done it this way. I mean, this was really a, like history was taking a step forward through this mass murder. It wasn't just something that happened and didn't it wasn't important. This really changed everything. Um, and it was because people never thought that this could be, it could be possible. Right. Um, yeah, and I want to also talk about the U.S. Uh, in those early days in October leading up to the beginning of this extermination campaign. What were they thinking? What were they saying? And then how did they contribute to this um, mass killing? Yeah, so now, I mean, we have... I mean, we still don't have full CIA declassification for the period, although in, in the book I called them up and asked, you know, hey, can you tell me what you were doing? Never hurts to ask. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, as a journalist, you know, you always ask, ask for comment. They unsurprisingly didn't tell me. But we, can, we, um, we have a really good uh, sense of what the, the State Department was doing and saying, um, in large part thanks to a great historian, Bradley Simpson, uh, whose book, uh, Economist with Guns, really made uh, my work and a lot of other work possible. Um, so... Briefly, uh, as soon as Suharto seizes power, um, 
illegally. The United States recognizes him as the the, the, the leader of the country rather than uh, Sukarno. Um, they supply communications uh, materials to him. They discuss supplying weapons to him, although it's not um, clear whether or not there was ever needed that they do so because he already had so much uh, U.S. Uh, supplies. The U.S. With these, uh, with the help of this communications equipment, Suharto spread this uh, this propaganda story that I told you about, um, and then throughout all of the communications between the United States and Suharto over the period of the mass murder. And in my book, I picked some select cables that, like, you could just read exactly what they were saying. The U.S. was getting in-depth reports of how many all the people that were being murdered, how they were being murdered, and as this was happening, was making it very clear to. Suharto, that you will be recognized, you will get aid, you will be able to take over as leader of this country if Sukarno is deposed in this way. You know, it was, and Suharto understood that killing more of these people was going to lead to being recognized by the so-called free world. Um, there's one cable that's really interesting. It says, you know, at one point they just turn around and ask straight up to the Americans, you know, how much, how much are these dead bodies worth to you? Like, how much will we get for this? Uh, and the answer is quite a lot. Um, and then, I mean, for me, <laughs> that is damning enough. But then later, uh, one uh, employee of the State Department um, gave it an interview to the Washington Post and said that he was supplying names of communists or whoever to the Indonesian military so that they could be killed, crossed off and passed back to them. So sort of, ah, oh, make sure you get this guy, make sure you get these guys, make sure you get these guys. So um, while the United, no one in the US was pulling the trigger or sort of, you know, plunging the metal into the flesh of these innocent leftists, um, they were a part and parcel uh, of the operation at every stage, going back, I think, a full decade. I think you cannot understand what happens without understanding um, 1955 to 1965, not just 1965 itself. And then everything that the, that the Indonesian military hoped would happen if they killed all these people happened. Um, Suharto became one of the most important allies of the West in the Cold War, basically got carte blanche to do whatever he wanted um, in his own country and in his, in his region. So as a result, he became one of the most corrupt leaders in human history. Uh, he ended up invading East Timor, once again using anti-communism as his justification for what, what he wanted to do in the first place, killing perhaps a third of that country um, with the backing of the US and Australia. Um, and, you know, until the end of the Cold War, this this was somebody that was really, you know, uh, uh, a fully fully card-carrying card member of the of the free world, of the West, of the, of the, of the, of the global fight against communism. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, unsurprisingly, there obviously were major economic um, incentives for replacing Sukarno. I know that, you know, one of the common threads that we see over and over again is that as the um, global South looks to nationalize their resources, take back their resources, that always tends to be something that triggers a response from the West. Um, you know, in the book, you mentioned that um, the U.S. basically said to Suharto, like, yeah, we'll work with you, you know, exterminate the PKI, get rid of Sukarno, and also this plan to nationalize oil. Uh, we don't like that. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, how the economic situation changed and what the uh, so-called Berkeley mafia was. Yeah, the oil one is really interesting. I mean... Bradley Simpson, the story I just mentioned, uses it as like an important counterfactual 
that because sometimes the State Department would, would say, oh, well, like, what could we do? Like, you know, we don't control these these people. But when it mattered, uh, well, first of all, I think that's ridiculous that the entire the entire like terrain upon which they construct that kind of factual doesn't exist because they were encouraging them to, to carry out the killing. But in the in this one case, when it became clear to the West that Suharto might continue with this plan to uh, retain national control over the country's oil industry, they immediately and very effectively made him change his mind. Uh, the full pressure of the U.S. state was brought to bear upon Suharto. It was made very clear to him, if you do this, the deal is entirely off. So throughout the history of the Cold War, there's often this kind of, this dilemma, this um, this dialogue, or, or sort of this, this contradiction um, where on the one hand people say, well, are, are all these are all these atrocities motivated by ideology? Is it about anti-communism? Is it about sort of mm -hmm. the U.S. disdain or fear of the Soviet Union? Or is it really just about like economic power? Is it about um, material interests in the global south? And like I think that that is an unnecessary contradiction, right? Like it's it's both, right? right. It's almost always both. Sometimes the proportions, you know, are, are much larger on this side rather than on this side. Um, um, but if you really want the CIA to come coming for you, to, to come for you, the right thing to do is to set out a geopolitical path, which is independent of Washington, and also to threaten the profits of an important U.S. company, which has the ears of the foreign policy establishment of the United States. In the, in the case of Indonesia, I, I would probably say it was a little bit more geopolitics than, uh, oil, but oil mm -hmm. mattered a lot. And, um... Oil was a, you know, the oil industry is famously uh, good at making itself heard in, in Washington, D.C. And here they really they really put uh, influence on mm -hmm. the U.S. government and on the, the, the budding Suharto regime to make sure that they had access to those resources. Later, mining gold became very important, too. Yeah. But uh, this is another case where it was really both. Yeah, I think those two things can layer on top of each other as well, where it's, you know, there are certain people who are losing out financially, but they know it's not a compelling argument to say, hey, I don't want to lose money, so we should depose this person. So they have to have some sort of philosophical argument, you know, for why this person needs to go. And then there are all of these true believers that sort of buy into that line of thinking like, oh, okay, I, I see the reasoning here. So I think you're right on the mark that it's just this sort of swirl of there are these economic reasons that things happen. And then there are people who pile on to whatever um, propagandist story is in the media and sort of swallow it whole. And I think we've seen that, you know, certainly in the U.S. for the over the last few years, not to get too far off topic, but if you look at, you know, something like Bolivia, where we, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, when something like Bolivia, where we had this, um, this coup that essentially was probably for lithium, um, you know, the way the press talked about it was, oh, well, you know, there were irregularities in the election. That's a super easy go-to line. People will just repeat that back to you. You don't need any evidence to back it up. You can just say that. Um, but uh, let's get into then, uh, you know, we I think we got to wrap up here, but the last few questions, let's just talk about yeah. the ramifications of what happened, this horrible extermination. Um, all around the world. In the book, you do a great job of, you know, sort of tracing that thread across many different countries, many different places and times. Yeah, so while we have largely forgotten about this event in the English-speaking world, um, 
1965, this was something that everybody noticed. This was a big deal. I mean, this was the largest communist party outside of China and the Soviet Union. This was one of the founders and, and loudest proponents of the Third World Movement. Um, this reverberated throughout planet Earth and especially the Global South. So in two sort of, um, in two very different ways. On the one hand, for other left-wing movements around the world, especially ones that had believed in the unarmed, peaceful, democratic path to socialism, a lot of them looked over this and thought, oh, that's not possible. Actually, the imperialists will come for us and we could all end up in a river. So a lot of um, leftist groups in the middle of the 60s had this debate as to whether or not we should radicalize, whether or not we should arm, whether or not we should take to the hills. And I point out a few cases of where that did happen. In other cases, they, they chose not to be influenced. But this really changed the left's understanding of geopolitics. And I think I'll, it's really hard to understand places like Cuba in 2021 without understanding this logic from the, from the perspective of, of the left in, mm -hmm. in the global south in the 20th century. They thought that if you didn't become self-defensive, you were going to all be killed. You and everybody you knew was, was going to end up dead. Now, on the right, um, the world's uh, anti-communists, the world's uh, the allies of the United States, potential allies of the United States, uh, the radical far right looked at 1965 and thought, okay, we could do that. That worked. They got away with it. It was extremely effective at allowing them to consolidate power and construct an authoritarian capitalist regime. And did not only do the most powerful country in human history help them do it, they helped them to get away with it afterwards. Not only did the, the most powerful country in U.S. history give them advice and pointers and, 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 and backing throughout this atrocity, they got to emerge onto the world stage as one of the good guys. And, and Washington and its full media apparatus, sort of, uh, uh, not that it's that simple, but it, you know, if it could have been perceived as that simple, all you know, came around to clean up the mess and to pretend that, that it hadn't happened and to sort of legitimize these regimes as much as possible. So as I mentioned before, there are over 20 cases in the Cold War where something like this happens. And the title of my book, The Jakarta Method, comes from the fact that um, in some of these cases, Jakarta was the word that was used to denote this, this tactic, this plan of action, this method. Um, most famously, this was in Chile in, in, in during the period, or sorry, during the presidency of Salvador Allende, the democratically elected socialist. Um, Jakarta, or Jakarta is coming, was graffitied on the walls of the Capitol or sent in postcards uh, to leftists or perceived leftists or em uh, employees of the regime. And the message to anybody that was paying attention at that point in the Cold War was very clear. The message was, we're going to kill you, just like they killed those communists. And in 1973, with the U.S.-backed coup, which deposed uh, Salvador Allende and, and led to the regime of Augusto Pinochet, Jakarta did come. That is exactly what happened. They killed thousands of people, yeah. often the people that had received these messages previously, and I, and I met some of them. Um, they still remember very vividly this threat, not knowing that it was terrifying, but not really believing that it was real. Um, uh, behind the scenes in Brazil, we have something called Operação Jakarta, which, which again was, was not very public, just this Operation Jakarta had been discussed at least in secret by the, the Brazilian military. In 1975, Brazil and Chile and many other South American US-backed authoritarian capitalist regimes get together and they create something called uh, the Condor Plan. Uh, and Condor is a international mass murder network. It is 
something that these company these countries came up with uh, jointly so that they could take care of their perceived enemies anywhere they were in South America or increasingly in the world. I mean, one murder very famously was carried out in Washington, D.C. They planned others in, in, in Europe. This was a, a network of mass murder. Now, in Operation Condor member countries, uh, tens of thousands of people died. And then in the 80s, as Central America became the perceived problem spot for Washington and the anti-communist right uh, globally. Um, Operation Condor leaders traveled up to Central America and gave tips to dictatorships in, in, in those countries. Eventually, the, the, the U.S. showed up too. And then in Central America, you saw the, the intentional mass murder of hundreds of thousands of people for being communist or uh, allegedly communist, or really in the case of Guatemala, the worst one in the Western Hemisphere, for being from the wrong indigenous tribe. I mean, entire ethnicities were written off by the dictatorship in Guatemala as being too sympathetic or potentially sympathetic to a left-wing guerrilla movement. And so I think that this tactic, this process, this informal mass murder network uh, that really starts in the early 50s and, and continues until the end of the 20th century played a fundamental role in the way that the Cold War happened in the way that it, it really concretely shaped life on much of the planet. Uh, again, this is, this is where two-thirds of the, of, of the Earth's people live. In, in the West, the Cold War is all spy stuff between Moscow and Washington, maybe a little bit of Berlin, but really the Cold War was about the Global South and the vast, vast majority of people that lived through some kind of horrible confrontation, often with the United States being far more aggressive than any socialist power. And, and as I kind of hint at in the book's subtitle, I really think that this shaped the world that, that we live in. I think that you, you would not have this type of globalization, this type of planetary order that we have now without this tactic being employed in the, in the, in the Cold War. Absolutely. Yeah, this um, essentially yeah. mass slaughter that's sort of buried or we learn about it very in a very piecemeal way. You make the case that is very much a part of the end of the Cold War and the sort of um, global hegemony, uh, hegemonic capitalism that exists today. Um, so, Vincent, I think we're we're out of time here, but I do want to thank you so much for coming on the program, and I also do yeah. want to encourage everyone to pick up The Jakarta Method. I think it's just such an important book, and it's such a broad, broad topic, so it's it's really, um, you know, if you want to understand more about why the world is the way it is today, I think it's a great read, and, um, and I'll, I'd really encourage everyone to read it. So thank you so much, Vincent. Thank you so much. Committee, we're young, we're committee, we're committee.